And so the thing with full recourse, a lot of people shy away from full recourse. And I would say that the loan that I took out for my 10 unit mm -hmm. was a full recourse loan. I'm fully responsible for the loan. But I knew that that property would never drop so low, regardless of the market, that I would have to default on that loan. I could always sell it to pay off the loan. And, you know, I was right, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. So. Okay. That's the thing. I would never take out a full recourse loan with partners I didn't know on a $20 million asset. That would be absolutely ridiculous. You're listening to The Azria Show. If you're looking for quality real estate investing information that you can trust, you've found it. Stay tuned and join the tens of thousands of members that have already benefited from Azria, your home for education, market information, support, and networking opportunities that will advance your real estate investing career. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Azria Show. I'm your host, Marcus Maloney, and we have our executive director and co-host, Mike Delpree. Hello, hello. And today we are going to be talking about multifamily. Have we had anybody on about multifamily yet, Mike? Yes, just uh, Anthony Chara. Anthony Chara. But was that was, one? what, a year ago? Yeah. A year and a half ago? It was a while ago. Okay. Yeah. Well, we have Jose Miller here today, who is our subgroup leader for the multifamily subgroup. And we're going to be talking about multifamily today. So uh, for those of you that are interested in bumping up from single family to multifamily, this is a great episode for you to listen to. If you are haven't done a deal and you're looking to start out with multifamily, this is a great episode to listen to. If you're still on the fence and you don't know what you want to do, this is a great episode to listen to. So Jose, man, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing really well. Thanks, Marcus. Welcome, welcome. Yeah, welcome, welcome. So tell us, um, Jose, give us a little bit of background, man. What do you do pre-real estate? You know, are you still working at W-2? Kind of give us your background here. Oh, so yeah, so I um, went to Purdue University. I got my- okay. Boilermaker. Uh, that's right. Bachelor's and Master's in Aerospace Engineering. So my W-2 is, is I work on satellite. Um, effectively, it's called System Integration and Test. So I test satellites. Awesome. Software. Okay. So you're kind of like a quasi-rocket scientist or something like that, right? But, well, by definition, yeah, I'm, an, I'm a rocket scientist. Okay. By definition, Jose yeah. is wow, a rocket scientist. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> impressive. So when someone always says it doesn't take a rocket scientist to do real estate, is that true? That is true. And I would know because <laughs> you're a rocket scientist. I never been. Wow, that's amazing. Never. <laughs> Pretty cool. All right. Where you been? My day's Mike? made. Where you cool. been, Mike? <laughs> that's great. Okay. All right. So Jose, so you're a rocket scientist, and outside of doing your rocket scientist stuff, you know, your engineering and everything like that. What made you want to get into real estate at all, period? Yeah, I'd always been fascinated with uh, taxes, tax law, and real estate, and real estate law. And it's just been, um, it's just been really fascinating. It's always interesting, sort of the, I don't want to use the word tricks, but the loopholes and figuring things out because Real estate and taxes are not things that are very obvious. You know, they're not cut and dry. So there's always these sort of creative ways that you can do things better, make a little more money, save a little bit of money. Um, for me, the thing that's drawn me to real estate more so now is I like, 
I like being able to provide people homes and housing. I like that I have that, that I have that ability to make people's lives just a little bit better through mm -hmm. a better place to live. Okay. So what was, so you're looking at the taxation and the loopholes that the government provide for uh, real estate investors. Um, what made you jump out there and decide to take that first leap? Oh, uh, so a friend of mine went through a divorce and someone, her ex-husband destroyed her credit, destroyed his credit. So she needed a place to live. She couldn't get an apartment. And so she knew that I wanted to get into real estate. So we went out, priced condominiums. So I was able to buy a condo, agree on a price that was fair to her and that was fair to me. And she ended up being a tenant for six years, got her okay. credit together. She went back to school. She was able to get a good job. And so now her life is a lot, a lot different than it used to be for sure. Great. And all, and all while you're able to benefit as well as that's a real estate investor. That's correct. Great, man. That's, that's cool. correct. Yeah. That's a different approach. So mm -hmm. you found somebody that needed something and you said, okay, well, I'll go out now, supply that need. And then you guys kind of joint partnered. In essence, not on paper, but right. she's just, you know, your tenant and you guys started that way. That's right. She was super easy to work with, allowed me a lot of flexibility. So if something broke, yeah, I knew that she was going to tell me about it. Yeah, I knew she was a, a perfect tenant. So it worked out because we were both helped each other out. Okay. And, and is there any, like, there must've been some hesitation because, you know, working with friends and family and, and things like that, sometimes there's a lot of trust there. Right. And then, you know, you would normally hear, hey, the friend never paid the person back or something, left the house. So were you nervous about that at all or any advice around working with friends? So in my time as a real estate property manager, because I also manage, self-manage a lot of the units that I have, um, I've learned that everybody that has been a poor tenant, I, I knew, I mm -hmm. knew they were going to. I won't say I knew it. I will say that I could feel that this might not be the best fit. Mm -hmm. And okay. I think for friends and family, what a lot of people do is ignore that feeling because they're hoping that their friends and family won't be bad tenants. Yeah. But in hindsight, I think pretty much everybody can look back and say, yeah, I kind of knew that was probably mm -hmm. not my best choice. Yeah. Sometimes you can see, you could, you get those little red flags, you yeah. know, it may not be anything egregious or anything like that, but. Like you say, you get that gut feeling and you'd be like, ah, you know what? I just don't know about this. But then you say, then that's when you say, okay, well, they're family, they're friend. Let right. me help them out. And then you find yourself in a big, big mess. So thank God that yeah. didn't happen for you. Like I was talking to Michaela this morning about section eight, right? People are like, are they going to trash my house? Are they, they going to pay? Are, are, you know, the inspections crazy with section eight? No, just be a real estate investor. Do your due diligence. Exactly. Right. Follow mm -hmm. their management protocol. And that shouldn't work, shouldn't be an issue. So same thing with the friends, it sounds like. Absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect. And of course, I'm sure you guys have, have made, uh, made well people aware of this, but the new law in place for city of Phoenix, they're no longer allowed to discriminate mm -hmm. for source of income. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, we have those updates for you. Yep. And that's, that's one of the things that I always look at when we get ready to place a tenant. And actually I was on a call this morning with my property manager. She was like, you know what, this lady, she doesn't quite meet the criteria because our income wasn't three times the rent, but she was like right there on the border. And, you know, she was like, but I got a good feeling about her. You know, she's, right. she's older, responsible, you know, and I said, well, if you got a good feeling about her, 
you know, you're the property manager. If something goes wrong, you know, and I'm going to look at you. So it's up to you, you know, to, to complete your due diligence and, and make it happen. So. Cool. So, so what happened next? So you had a, a good experience. So I had a positive experience there. I was able to buy a house in Chandler, mm-hmm. um, probably about a year later. And then I did, um, so I started looking for other venues or avenues for real estate investing. I looked into notes a little bit. I looked into land and settled on multifamily. Cool. Okay. It's, yeah, it was actually, it's funny. It was actually an accident because I was thinking about only getting a duplex or a threeplex. And then I ended up finding a 10 unit. Mm. And that's how I started with multifamily is that I ended up buying the 10 unit. I was able to, fortunately, because of my other real estate investments allowed me to, to collect enough capital or to raise enough money so that I could take it down myself. Okay. And that's how it started. So there's always this quandary between single family versus multifamily. You are in the single family space. What made you decide to make that leap from single family to multifamily? I knew multifamily had the economies of scale, as everybody talks about. If I have a two, a duplex or a threeplex, one roof, right, one yard, it's a lot easier to deal with. One set of payments, one set of property taxes, or one set of insurance, and it's just more doors. So for me, switching to multifamily or making that leap to multifamily wasn't about me making that decision to do that. It was actually about me realizing how possible it was because my other mistake, probably one of my very first real estate mistakes was a friend of mine had told me that his dream was to own a 50 unit apartment complex and retire. Hmm. And I thought that's ridiculous. People don't own 50 unit complexes. And I didn't even bother looking into it. I didn't ask any questions, nothing. Mm-hmm. And then I realized over time, oh my gosh, this is absolutely mm-hmm. reasonable. Reasonable, it's, yeah. It's very, it's very realistic. This is actually what people are doing. And I think it's awesome. I, I love the idea of multifamily, especially large multifamily, because to me, as an engineer, the complex is, is like this giant machine where all the people are moving parts. And my job is to make sure that everybody has the best life, can move about efficiently, make sure the parking is done, is, is, looks good, that they're safe, that everything is clean, everything is stable. Mm-hmm. And I, I enjoy that aspect of it. Okay. So, so being an engineer, and we, we have a lot of engineers that, as members that come through, mm-hmm. I do notice they lean on the analysis paralysis side of things. So any tips to our, our engineer members out there? I think you need to have confidence in your ability mm-hmm. and get past the fear. So in engineering, a lot of things that we do, we have to check, double check, mm-hmm. give somebody triple else, check. you know, triple check, <laughs> right? By giving them, do peer reviews. And it's that the same process that you would use in an engineering design, you can use in multifamily. Okay. So look at your numbers, be confident in what you're doing, and then hand it off to somebody else, somebody with a little bit more experience a second set of eyes, as we would say, to look it all over. And at that point in time, once everything checks out, you have to take that leap. Yeah. There's no other choice. Yeah. It's either you do it or you don't. Either you do or you don't. Yeah. Right. So, so what do you look for? Cause we, we talk about the numbers and a lot of people just talk about the number of doors, you know, 50 doors, so on and so forth. What are some of the numbers that you absolutely have to look for when doing your analysis, um, for 
you know, a multifamily acquisition? So as far as from, uh, as far as whether or not to purchase, you right. know, we're talking about an investor perspective. Yes. So with multifamily, most of the time, not every time, but most of the time you're going to have to get money from somewhere else. If like me, you're able to buy something, your first deal by using your own money, eventually your own money will run out. So mm -hmm. that means you have to go to other people. So it's about being a fiduciary for your investors. So what I look at, at is what would my investor or what would I as an investor want out of this property okay, or out of a particular investment? And so I'm looking at returns and those returns can come in a variety of ways. So with multifamily, you can be paid multiple ways. We'll say you can be paid through cash on cash. Of course, after all your expenses, after your debt service, you're going to get cash at the end of the month. Another way is going to be at the sale of the property. Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to recapture all that equity. Another way that you'll, you can gain money through multifamily investment is through tax, uh, through taxes, of course, depreciation of your asset mm -hmm. or accelerated depreciation. In most cases, people do accelerate depreciation, which means you have a less of a tax burden. Um, those are the primary ways that people will do it. Also, there's, uh, yeah, so it's going to be income, cash, depreciation. There's going to be various earnings and then depreciation and then leverage. leverage. So some people talk about leverage mm -hmm. as a possibility. Um, and, but using all of these types of way, all these different ways to make money, I'm going to see what my investor return is going to be. And that's sort of how I start evaluating whether or not a deal is going to work for me. And the reason why is because if I can't convince myself that it's good for the investor, I can't convince an investor to invest with me. Right. Right. And if somebody isn't willing to do that level of due diligence, then you really need to not be investing mm -hmm. with them. And any tips for raising money? Um, for raising money, what I'm going to do is just talk about myself as a person. I'm going to mm -hmm. talk about my track record. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk about what I have done, what I have seen, what my experience in the market is. And then why I believe that a particular investment is going to perform in the way that I am projecting. Yeah. Right. Because okay. I'm not predicting, I'm projecting. And so what then I'll do is, is I'll stress test that, uh, that analysis, meaning I'll say, well, what happens if my numbers aren't where they are? Mm -hmm. How does that look for it? So I'll talk to all these different points with an investor and then, you know, see where they're at. Also, the biggest thing when it comes to raising capital is understanding the pain points of the investor. So True. the type of investor that I relate with is the engineer or the professional. It's in their 40s, 50s, 60s, has a family, loves their job, mm -hmm. but is worried about their, college, their children's college education, worried about retirement, but doesn't want to spend time picking mm -hmm. stock. They don't want to spend time giving somebody money yeah. that they don't even know who this person is. This person right. has no relationship to them. So from an investor perspective, you want to make sure you establish that relationship with them. Good stuff, man. So, so education wise, is, is this, did you read any books? Did you take any classes, any mentors, or how'd you get all this multifamily information? Right. So when I first started with multifamily, I actually was able to take down the 10 unit by myself just through, um, my experience with single family. Okay. Okay. I was then able to, I found a mentor with uh, Rod Cleef mm -hmm. and 
who is uh, nationally known, I think. Is I was a, just listening to him this morning on my way in. It's a very large <laughs> podcast also, a very large mentorship program. Mm -hmm. I was able to make a lot of contacts there. I learned best through talking to different people, sharing information, which is why I love doing the subgroup. Mm -hmm. I also found Vertical Street Ventures. They focus primarily in Phoenix, Tucson, Arizona, and then now a little bit in Dallas. Okay. Okay. So I found those two mentorship programs and being able to make a lot of contacts, found a lot of partners, a lot of investors, and then I go to conferences. So I go to conferences and the information there is broad enough, but also specific enough that I'm learning a lot of information right. and filling in all the gaps, talking to more people, also read books, a lot of online books, mm -hmm. a lot okay. of podcasts. So are you, are you a warrior? I you're, am a warrior. You're a warrior, yes, huh? Technically, yeah. Okay. Still, right? <laughs> so it's a warrior. You got it. I'm out the loop here. So, so, um, Rod Cleef, his mentorship program, they're, got it. they're warriors and okay. he, they own what, like 185,000 units. I don't know. It's a lot. Yeah. So, so you participated in larger investments. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So I actually, or... yep, actually met some people that syndicate through Rod's program. Got it. And have partnered up with them. Cool, mm -hmm. man. Wow. So in, in, in keeping with the theme of, you know, starting to go bigger. So you got that 10 unit, right? How long did you, how long did you have that 10 unit before you started looking at bigger deals? Uh, up, about like five minutes. Okay. <laughs> and the reason why is because I realized that multifamily, large multifamily, of course, anything that's five units or more is different enough from small multifamily or single units that I knew immediately that I needed to learn as much as I could as quickly as possible. Okay. Are you using like banks or I know we talk about private money, mm -hmm. but like uh, how, how big will banks lend up to like what kind of, what size buildings? Oh, a bank will lend you anything, right? Got so you, what you have to worry about right now is the loan to value mm -hmm. that a lot of, because in single family, a lot mm -hmm. of people are facing, right? So loan to value. The cool thing about multifamily is there are certain programs that come up. So for example, right now, and I always forget if it's Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, but there's a program where they're encouraging people to invest in five to 40 unit properties. Wow. And they're mm. actually encouraging people through easier applications or better financing, slightly better terms. And so they're trying to encourage that market in order to increase the value of those properties, clean them up, make them a little bit nicer. And so they're, they're encouraging that. Okay. Yeah, I've that. actually had a broker call me specifically to tell me about it. Wow. Wow. Now, now I did hear, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, Jose, that that middle number of units, those are a little bit harder to manage or get a return on versus going like a hundred units or more. Um, because they say you can't have like the, the on grounds, property management mm -hmm. and everything like that. Can you, can you share that with some of that with us or am I just sure. completely, totally off? No, base? you're, you're actually right. You're right on the money here. So it isn't. See, I'm right on the money, man. There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is, is that there are a certain number of units or certain asset sizes that allow different things. And so some syndicators will tell you in that 70 to 80 unit range mm -hmm. is where you can start having dedicated on-site property management and 
dedicated on-site maintenance slash handyman. And that simplifies your life a lot of ways because you have somebody that's truly dedicated to right. that particular asset. If you have 40 units, 20 units, 10 units, you can still make money. And this is still about very doable, but just know that you might not have property management on site all the time because okay. you can't afford something like that. Right. Doesn't mean that you can't make money. The problem that I will tell a lot of people starting out is, is that once you get into that 70, 80, 90, 100 unit plus range, the people that you're competing with changes. Because if you look up, it's very easy. If you look up the number one probably syndicator in Arizona is Zach Appenstall, right? With Rise 48. He has, what they're doing is, is they're, I, I can't even, I don't even know how to explain it. So they're making everything very, they're doing mm -hmm. a really good job. They're very efficient with what they do. Mm -hmm. However, they're not looking at 40 unit properties. Right. They're looking at 150, 200 units properties, maybe down to 120 or something like that. That's their target because they know that they can do a really good job of making everything very efficient. Okay. So you're going to start competing with different people, but this is true in all, in all industries. If you are looking at really large, small size, commercial office mm -hmm. building, you know, up in Tempe Town Lake, you're competing with a different type of Investor, investor right. than you are if you're looking for something that's maybe in, you know, South Chandler okay, or something. So that's the thing that you have to consider. Gotcha. Okay. Another quick question here is conforming versus non-conforming loans. Because I know not- mean like a recourse loan? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's what I meant to say. Sure. Recourse, non-recourse and recourse loans. So can you explain the difference for those who that- who don't know? Sure. So full recourse loan means that basically you as an individual are guaranteeing the debt. Mm -hmm. Non-recourse means that the property or the asset is securing the debt. Now, there are things called bad boy clauses. I don't really know who came up with that phrase, but it's, it is exactly what you think it is. If you lie, if you don't do what is in the best interest of the property, if you start skimming money, then you can trigger a bad boy clause on a non-recourse loan, you would then be liable for the, for the loan. Wow. Okay. I didn't know that. Didn't even know that that was even a clause. So. Yeah. And so the thing with full recourse, a lot of people shy away from full recourse. And I would say that the loan that I took out for my 10 unit mm -hmm. was a full recourse loan. I'm fully responsible for the loan, but I knew that that property would never drop so low, regardless of the market that I would have to default on that loan. Sure. I could always sell it to pay off the loan. And, you know, I was right and that's fine. Mm -hmm. So okay. that's the thing. I would never take out a full recourse loan with partners I didn't know on a $20 million asset. That would be absolutely ridiculous. Okay. So for those who don't know, why? Why wouldn't I do that? Yeah. Because what they say is, is, you know, what a date before you get married. So when it comes to partners, if somebody basically violates the bad boy clause, we're all responsible for that. We're okay. all equal partners. So you need to make sure that you understand who people are, what they're going to do. The big thing that's in the news is those assets that got taken away in Texas. Yep, they was... defaulted. These guys went and tried to raise more money, took mm -hmm. it all, 
300 million. Is that what it is? Yep, 300 million. Yeah. So, and you have to be careful about Mm -hmm. people like that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was Apple investment group, I think something like that, but yeah, it was 300 million. It was an article in bigger pockets about it too. So that's one of the things. And, and actually that's a great segue, Jose, because that's what we're looking at now. And you can correct me if I'm wrong again, to where a lot of these larger multifamilies, the financing is about to reset. Are you concerned about any huge defaults kind of like Apple? So for me and the investments that I'm in, I'm not concerned about because we guarded against that upfront. So we were fortunate enough to buy rate caps or to make sure that the loan terms went out far enough that we won't be, that we won't be caught up in this interest rate okay. where the interest rates have gone up significantly. A lot of people are worried about exactly what you're Mm -hmm. talking about. I actually have friends and I meet people all the time that they are part of deals where the operators are having to do capital calls, which means is that they're asking the investors for more money because they need to pay either the debt, they need Mm -hmm. to, their interest only loans are now starting to expire or they're having to refinance at 7% when they underwrote for three and a half percent. So a lot of people are starting to run into problems. I'm telling people that it's not necessarily going to be the disaster that people were trying to predict that it is because interest rates have come down. They're down in the low fives. And mm-hmm. all they need to do for some large, yep. yes, for some multifamily, a lot of agency debt, which is the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac debt, low fives. If it gets below five, then these people that, didn't do a good job of underwriting, or maybe they uh, didn't buy the rate cap, they have to refinance, not at seven and a half, but maybe 4.8. Okay. So I think it won't be the quite the bloodbath and the fire sale that people want to talk about at 7%. Absolutely. Okay. A lot of people are going to be in a lot of trouble. Yeah. That's what, that's one of the things that Rod spoke about because he's, he, he says it, I'm an, I'm an absolute bear. You know, because he got hit real hard in 08 and 09. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things he's saying, which everybody should be doing, is starting to store up that capital. Mm-hmm. That way, if it do hit the fan, you can go out there and you can pounce and you can be ready to acquire more assets. So, I mean, great. This is a great conversation. Great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking to a rocket science. Yeah, yeah, right? Of course. <laughs> of course. So, awesome, um, you do education. Right. For, for Azria, for our multifamily subgroup, kind of talk about some of the things that you guys, that you go over with the group and things like that. Yeah. So we kind of broke it down into various steps and then we focus on one step per meeting. So one step might be acquisitions, developing relationships with brokers, how to survey or assess a property on a very surface level. How do you know whether or not it's something to do a deep dive into? We did some underwriting, we've done raising capital, we've done due diligence. So it's about, it's all the steps that you would do for single family. So it's going to be, how do I evaluate a property just by looking at some pictures online? And then what about doing my due diligence? So I'm going to put into a, put an offer in potentially, do my due diligence, get people out to a property, going to raise capital for that, raising capital. For single family means what? Coming up with a down payment mm-hmm. and securing a bank loan. Right. It's exactly the same in multifamily. It's just that 
there's a lot more people involved. Mm -hmm. So we talk about those different things. We, of course, have networking aspect of our group because multifamily, as everybody will say, is a team sport. Mm -hmm. So it's about meeting people in class. And I've actually met some people in class that want to partner or they're partnering with each other. They're talking to each other. They're offering services to each other. So it's been a really great community. I'm really happy about that. Yeah, we're excited to have you, man. Um, what's going on? We I think we figured it out the, a few days ago, like eight months you've been doing the multi. Yeah, something like that. Eight Since months. Since October. I think. And it's the third Monday of every month here at Ezria in the, the main office in Central Phoenix. And you can go to ezria.org forward slash calendar to register. Colton, okay. And then outside of that, I'm, yeah, we know we got, you have the uh, monthly subgroup meeting, but then something else is going on, right? Mike, you want to share? Yeah, let's definitely share. So June are at our monthly meeting at venue 8600 in Scottsdale. Jose will be teaching us all about multifamily. So first one is June, Monday night, June 12th at venue 8600. You're going to do an hour uh, segment of education on multifamily. Mm -hmm. You want to listen a little bit what you'll be talking about? Yeah. So what I'm going to be talking about is that a lot of people in Asria are familiar with the single family Correct. rental market and single family concept. And a lot of people don't realize, which is the exact same thing I didn't realize, is that multifamily is really not that far away, right? I was able to break into multifamily legitimately just through my experience of managing the rental mm -hmm. properties that I had and then going into multifamily. Now, there are some caveats or, well, not caveats even, but some nuances associated with large-scale multifamily. The legality, you know, the legal stuff is different. The contracts are a little bit different. Some of the relationships are a little bit different, but people aren't as far away from it as they think they are. Awesome. So that's June 12th. Are you saying something, Marcus? No, go okay. ahead. Uh, so it's Monday night, June 12th at Venue 8600 with Jose Miller. Then we're going to do the same exact thing. We're going to drive down to Tucson, uh, Tuesday, June 13th, and we'll be uh, hosting this event every month as well. It's the second Tuesday of the month at the Tucson Association of Realtors, talking about the same topic. And then we're going to come back for Saturday, June 17th, all day workshop you're putting on. So what's the workshop right. going to be about? So the workshop will basically be how to get started as a multifamily investor. It will be talking about everything that we've talked about in the monthly classes, but in a little bit more detail. And it brings it all together because learning things one day a month for an hour is, it's hard to do. Yeah. Also, mm -hmm. the thing is, is that we have to re sort of re go over other concepts right. in the one day workshop. We'll be able to go over everything once we'll be able to do a lot deeper dive into specific topics, but it will be about how to start investing in multifamily right away. It'll be perfect for somebody that's interested in breaking into multifamily as a syndicator or an operator, mm -hmm. but it is also great for somebody that wants to just be an investor because as an investor, you need to be able to evaluate the property on your own, not to the level that an operator would necessarily, but you need to be asking the right questions. You need to be understanding what these operators are telling you because a lot of them are just really great at sales. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Awesome, man. I'm excited to have you. Um, so June, it's all about multifamily. Uh, so if you're looking to hang out with like-minded people and, and learn about the business, this is going to be a perfect week for you to catch up. Meet Jose personally. Um, there's not going to be a sub, no, there, no subgroup be your, before, it'll be after that. So actually your subgroups are following. Correct. Got it. Got it. 19th. Okay. So we got June 12th, Monday in Scottsdale, June 13th in Tucson, June 17th 
in Central Phoenix here at the, at the headquarters. So excited to have you there. Thanks. All right, guys. That's another episode of the Azria Show. Thank you, Jose, for being here. We'll definitely see you um, in June for the event. Mike? How do we get a hold of, of yeah. Jose? Can How do we get a hold of you, <laughs> Jose? Probably the best way to get in touch with me is, of course, via email. You can email me at jose at geocentricinvestments.com. And geocentric is a satellite term. It's a space term. Okay. Yeah, they go to rocket science why, part. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so jose at geocentricinvestments.com. Um, I allow people to call me uh, on my cell phone number. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So that would yeah. be fine. It's 480-205-5735. Okay. And then you're actually looking at uh, another acquisition right now, currently, correct? Well, right now, what we're, what I'm doing is, is I'm actively raising for a fund. And what that means is, is the same way that we use real estate to diversify our investments, a fund is actually a way to diversify your real estate investment throughout multiple assets. So currently I am doing a raise for accredited investors only um, to invest in a fund with some partners of, uh, and myself. Okay. So, so everybody make sure you're clear, accredited versus non-accredited. What's that stipulation, Jose? So in order to be an accredited investor, that is a SEC, set of criteria, you have to either have $1 million in assets, not including your primary residence. You have to make $200,000 as a single person for the previous two years with a reasonable expectation that that will continue. $300,000 as a couple, as a married couple, if you're filing jointly and you both want to be considered accredited. You can also have certain SEC brokerage uh, licenses or certificates and things like that. There's a few of them. I'm not savvy with all of them, but okay. most of those people would already know if they were accredited. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. True. Very true. Okay, guys, now that is a wrap on this week's Azria show. Remember, we air every Friday at 8 a.m. on all podcast platforms. There you Make go. Sure so thank you so much, guys. Remember to always get out there and take massive action. And we want to see you right here at Azria. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to The Azria Show with your hosts, Marcus Maloney and Mike Delpreet. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found this information valuable, head over to azria.org and learn more about our community.